Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome a very close friend for a very long time, Rich Legwig, President and Chief Executive Officer of BJC Healthcare in St. Louis. I've known Rich for over 20 years and have admired his work literally from coast to coast, and I'm very grateful for his friendship. Rich, thanks for making time to be with us. Hey, Tom, it's my pleasure and great to hear your voice. You too. I mentioned the coast-to-coast element. You've held senior leadership positions all, you know, from Duke to UC San Diego, now at BJC in the Midwest. What are some of the biggest differences between the places that you've been, and what are some of the most striking similarities? You know, Tom, when you say that, it it sounds like I move around a lot, but I've I've only been in three organizations my 35-plus years, and the similarities and they've all been with large, major academic healthcare systems. As a result, the missions of those three organizations that you mentioned are very similar, patient care, research, education, and in many ways, community health improvement, safety net mission. So the missions have been very, very similar. They also each have served as the primary quaternary referral center in their respective markets. They each do not have a payer arm. So they work with payers, but they didn't have their own insurance product. Their large academic medical centers were closed medical staffs. So much of the cultures were very similar. The differences, you know, I probably would start with governance. Two of the three, Duke and UCSD, were under the governance and the, the ownership of those two respective universities, where BJC Healthcare is a separate corporation that has a longstanding, almost 100-year affiliation agreement with Washington University and its School of Medicine. BJC is the largest of the three. So from a scale and scope, lots of differences between the three organizations and as a result, different market sizes that they operated within. Uh, In describing BJC, the largest of the three organizations with a very diverse portfolio, large adult academic medical center, similar to Duke and UCSD, a very large children's hospital. So probably actually very different from both. Duke would have a children's hospital. UCSD just partnered with Rady Children's, but at BJC, St. Louis Children's is part of the BJC healthcare organization. And then BJC has critical access hospitals, large community hospitals, small community hospitals, and then large safety net facilities as well. Each of us have employed medical groups, and each of the organizations have very large faculty practice plans, although again, at BJC, the faculty practice plan is part of Washington University. Those are some top-of-mind similarities and differences between the three. Rich, hearing you talk about the similarities and the differences between the three organizations, I picked up on the size, the complexity, the diversity of settings that you are dealing with in St. Louis that are bigger and perhaps a little more complicated than either Duke or UC San Diego. And that makes me think back, you know, you've been a great supporter of our research over the years. And with your background in operations, I remember that you were always particularly interested in our studies around intrasystem variation in resource consumption. And given the fact that you're now at BJC, where you've got all these different settings, you go from rural critical access hospitals to a tertiary quaternary medical center. As we've studied health systems, we've actually seen that as they get bigger, variation just naturally increases rather than decreases. It's a mathematics thing more than anything else. What do you think gets in the way of health systems adopting 
a more consistent clinical pathway? And, and what are you guys doing at BJC that you think will make some progress in that regard? So you're right, Tom. I've always admired, actually, the work that Vizient has done looking at variation and resource consumption. Certainly when I was at UC San Diego, a much smaller enterprise where scale worked to our advantage in terms of standardization. Moving to BJC, which, as you've also described, much more complex, very diverse portfolio hospitals and care delivery sites that does create its own challenges. And what I'd say is we've learned that declaring an organization a system is clearly not enough to achieve the level of standardization and integration and required to bring real value to patients and to healthcare as a whole. Without a doubt, there's a lot of inertia in the delivery of healthcare. And clinicians, physicians, extenders just don't automatically adopt a common approach just because they are now connected within a large healthcare integrated delivery system. You know, at BJC, we're tackling this by concentrating on building more local clinical communities that engage our clinicians for greater standardization of care. Sometimes in the goal of greater standardization, it just means getting adoption around evidence-based standards. Other times where the evidence is less well-developed, we work with our clinicians to find their way to a common approach to achieve the efficiency standardization can bring. What I've learned, there's no shortcutting this process. You can't just declare we're a system and now let's all standardize. You know, there's just a lot of variability in a business where ultimately it's people taking care of people. We've made progress, but the environment within a large adult academic medical center is very different than the environment within a 25-bed critical access hospital. So there's going to be variation in care delivery, even when taking care of a very similar diagnosed patient, just given the resources that exist within those environments. BJC has been a great learning lab, though, for us. We constantly are working to eliminate much of that variation that we say does not add value ultimately to the patient. And, uh, but we still have much, much work to do, even in an organization the size and scale of BJC. You know, Rich, listening to you talk about the variation reduction efforts, it makes me think of something that I've said on the road in speaking engagements from time to time, that being a system is not about an awning or a logo. It's tough sledding and it's hard work. I'm really interested in your concept of local clinical communities. It's almost as though what you're doing is breaking the problem down into digestible portions where you can bring folks together. And if there's variation between points A and point B, at least there's less variation within point A and point B. Is that fair? That's actually very, very fair. And having been in three large academic medical centers, sometimes the variation is a function of innovation. And we don't want to lose that as we continue to advance the frontier of medicine. Now, at the same time, we need to make sure it's, it is true innovation and it, it just isn't preference that's driving that variation. That's a great point. Another largely, call it an unmet promise of health systems nationally, in my mind, is the rationalization of where we do what. We still see a lot of low acuity services occurring in tertiary medical centers. It seems like when we start to move low acuity services out of the hospital, we can get them to go all the way to the outpatient setting. 
but it's more difficult sometimes to relocate inpatient services from a higher to a lower acuity hospital. Is that rock too big and the hill too steep? If, if you were asking me this question a couple of years ago, I may have given you a very short answer and said, yes, I think it is. I think with the cost pressures that we're experiencing across the industry, I think we'll see that rock move. We've been able to, in some ways, elevate the capability of our community hospitals and decant some inpatient care from our large academic medical center, Barnes Jewish Hospital, and decant those out into some of our community hospitals. Think stroke, heart failure, surgical oncology. Similarly, we've been able to do the same thing at our children's hospital, St. Louis Children's Hospital, where we've been able to move out some of the higher-end neonatal care into some of our community hospitals. As we think about tertiary medical centers, many of them, particularly the academic ones, are located in large urban areas where many of the underserved live. And they use the academic medical center not just as the AMC, but also as their community hospital. You know, in that case, the rocket times is the social determinants of health that make it more difficult to rationalize and move tertiary care out of one setting and into another setting. Your point around moving low acuity directly to the outpatient or in the home, and that will continue to advance. That's a win for all and certainly a win for the patient and certainly a win for the payers. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, as our financial, our balance sheets are stressed, this is going to encourage systems of size anyway to look at eliminating non-value-added duplication of services that exist within the same marketplace within which they operate. And I think we'll see greater consolidation and therefore more coordination and more rationalization of tertiary, quaternary, and even secondary care in certain marketplaces. You know, it's a little bit off topic, but listening to you just triggered something in my mind. Our most recent research project, which we're just wrapping up now and are about to debut in a few weeks, deals with the problem of the payer system. And it asks the question to a group of our members, if you could change the system, if you weren't stuck with what we have, what would we do differently? And one of the things that our members talked about was the concept of rather than everything being fee-for-service the way we have in the past, moving more toward a global budget idea, not capitation, not you being an insurance company, but probably closer to Maryland rather than to England and saying basically, hey, Rich, here's the money that we've been using for everything that middle Missouri has needed of you. But here it is. You take the money and then do with it what makes the most sense to give you more flexibility and to give you the ability to innovate. And I think if we did something like that, on the one side, it would free you up to be creative. And on the other side, it would create additional financial incentives to put the right stuff in the right place. Do you think there's truth to that? I'm not the expert on the pros and cons of, if you will, the, the Maryland model. I've got very dear friends that operate in that marketplace. And the experience I hear is sometimes it works very well. Other times it has its own challenges. So without actually putting a stake in the ground on your specific question, it is clear the current payment structure of American healthcare is problematic. It does not align incentives across those who pay for care, those who provide care, and those who are receiving care. You know, a single pair model, more that you see in Europe and outside the United States, has its attractions. I 
don't see a Medicare for all. I just don't see how we get there in this country, given the varied interests that are part of the current ecosystem, providers, the insurance companies, drug companies, device companies, et cetera. There's clearly a lot of non-value-added processes that don't allow us to take what we do spend in healthcare and put it to good use to improve outcomes and care for those that need our services. I'd like to see us move to more value-based care, which maybe gets to your point. There's, at least in the Midwest, there's a fair amount of reluctance to move in that direction. I actually think if the payers and the providers could align, we could see some benefit in more of the care being reimbursed under a value-based model. Yet there, at least in the Midwest, seems to be great reluctance to move there very quickly. We do see it moving in that direction in our Medicaid program. And obviously at the Medicare level, we're seeing much more Medicare Advantage. That's creating some real angina for us as a provider, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of how we're getting paid. And both those payment streams do not cover our full cost, which then require us to find that offset still in the commercial market, which is a challenge. Yeah. So I steered the car into the guardrail rather than lurching it right back onto the road. Let's skid along the guardrail for a quick second, because what you just said takes me to another point relative to this idea of changing the way we pay for things. The cross-subsidization, the way I, I look at it, the Byzantine cross-subsidies of the payment system, where government pay doesn't float its own boat and the private sector is looked to to subsidize the government sector. It creates a couple of problems, and I'd like to talk to you about one of them in a moment, but I'm going to take us off topic and bring up that first one is the economic pressure on hospitals to either create or to maintain surgical programs that are sometimes at uncomfortably low volumes. We've got a troubling prevalence of high-risk, low-volume surgical programs operating below published proficiency thresholds. I think we can look to the payment system to understand why, because it, it just puts so much pressure on individual hospitals to try to do things to be financially solvent that might be better done in a larger, more coordinated fashion. What do you think health systems can or must do to consolidate surgical programs in these situations where one system has four, five, six programs and might be better off with three more vigorous ones? Yeah, Tom, I actually think the systems that are regional in nature have the opportunity to truly pursue what I'll call true clinical integration. And what I mean by that is the ability then to appropriately place those low-volume, high-risk surgical programs in one or two locations where they consolidate the volume. Mm -hmm. Yet, if you're a freestanding hospital, you know, in a marketplace, and because of the economic incentives, very difficult for those hospitals to get to scale. Mm -hmm. I, again, I think given what we're experiencing in the industry right now, we're going to see just much greater consolidation. And so for the systems, and I think about that true clinical integration, we will develop structures, processes, governance, and other models that truly will, and I think we'll see this move much quicker in the next couple of years than what we've seen in our rearview mirror, to deliver that patient care in the right location at the right time so that we're no longer operating these low-volume 
high-risk programs. It's an imperative for the systems, therefore, then to consider the enterprise financial performance, not each individual hospital performance, and determining how safely then to deploy those services. And as a result of that, we're doing our assessment at BJC. Some existing platforms may need to be closed or limited to true emergent intervention and therefore volumes consolidated into certain tertiary centers or at least providing the transportation necessary so that we can actually move a patient to the right location if they present in one of our outlying community hospitals where we don't want to replicate a situation where we're doing, as you pointed out, low-volume, high-risk surgical procedures. That's just not good quality care. And ultimately, that impacts the reputation of an organization, what ultimately is going to impact the financial performance. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And in my mind, if we were to take ourselves back to 25 years ago when you and I first met, before much of the consolidation that we've seen in the industry, one of the real true value propositions of forming health systems is that rationalization of where we do what. And I just am frustrated by the fact that I've seen the payment system get in the way of realizing what those potential consolidation opportunities could have been. And it just makes my teeth hurt that as a country, we can't see that the way we're paying for things is getting in the way of doing the right thing. To that point, it goes back to, and I got to be careful what I wish for, you know, moving to value faster because the value rewards outcomes and rewards lower total cost of care. Right. Yeah. If we can get to the right definition of value, right? I mean, and there's, there's a reluctance on both sides of that equation to move fast. Providers, you know, and I would even say we may not be as well positioned as we ultimately will need to be as BJC to accept value. And many of the payers are unwilling to move because of the uncertainty it brings to their business model. Another thing that frustrates me having 40 years watching this is the fact that we've created this adversarial relationship between the payer and the provider. And it's just counterintuitive to the way that you would do it if you were really wanting to just have everybody try to do the right thing. When it comes to people's health and well-being, you wouldn't pit one person against another in an adversarial relationship. I don't know that there's a question in there as much as just an editorial on my part. Yeah, certainly the system wasn't designed to create those tension points. And then hopefully in the next 35 years, 40 years, (laughs) that will change. You and I won't be around to see it. No, Uh, no. But but somebody else on this podcast can discuss it. (laughs) That's right. Our grandkids will smile and say, maybe this is what they were talking about way way back when. Last question in, in this stream of consciousness that we've been exploring here. Again, the payment system and these cross subsidies, if you will, have put us in a situation where... It's very difficult for us to do something that I think as a country, we have a moral commitment and a desire to do. The country is appropriately and increasingly uncomfortable with health disparities, but the payment system puts us in a situation where certain patients have so much more revenue associated with them than other patients that it's almost impossible for us not to have health disparities. And I don't think we can continue to have the private public price disparity that we have and then hope as a country to eliminate health disparities. What do you think? 
we spend and invest a significant amount of effort and resource in addressing the health disparities that exist here within our local marketplace in St. Louis. And so this is a, a topic near and dear to our hearts and our mission. At a macro level, you've probably given me the data over the years. You know, when we compare what the United States invests in health care compared to other developed countries, we're leading that charge. When you then compare what we invest in social services, we're at the bottom, we're at the back of that pack. When you combine the two, we look very similar to other developed countries. Mm -hmm. So I actually think regardless of what we think of the payment structure of healthcare delivery in the U.S., what we have under-resourced is social programs, housing, education, job training, food deserts, transportation. We make it very difficult for those without means to get access to those social programs, which, as the data shows, is a more reliable predictor of health outcome. And as a country, we need to address that in equity. And as we've experienced in the last couple of years, the country has turned to its health care providers to fill the gap of public health and in many ways to be held accountable for some of the deficiencies in those social services. And we're not in a position based on the payment structure for medical care to also then provide, if you will, our limited resources to fill that gap. I don't know as a country how we pivot, yet I don't think we can just make it about the cross-subsidy model that exists on the provider side, that if we were to somehow level that playing field, all of a sudden we would see the disparity gaps close. I don't think those gaps close until as a country we invest more in the social services. And the healthcare providers have a role to play, without a doubt. And many of us are trying to play that role and doing it in partnership with other nonprofits you know, that are working in this space and working alongside with them. But it's a very complex set of issues that are going to require a different agenda that's really focused on more investment in social programs than looking to the providers to address that. Well said. You know, Rich, we always try to close a podcast with a question that gives folks a chance to learn something about our guests that they would never otherwise know. Uh, now, we'll be airing this podcast after the holidays, but we're recording it just before Christmas, which makes it feel just about right to ask you about a job you had early in your career. Uh, I understand that you and Charles Dickens both sold Christmas trees in New York City together when you were a young lad. Tell us a couple of your funniest stories and share with our listeners your hands-on experience with price elasticity of demand. Thanks, Tom. You know, I'm not that old, so just for the audience. Sake, <laughs> uh, I, this is my favorite time of year. I have the privilege of serving as the CEO of BJC Healthcare, which BJC stands for, for those who don't know, is Barnes Jewish Christian. There were three hospitals and systems that came together. Actually, we'll be celebrating our 30th anniversary in 2023. So we are very ecumenical in terms of the holidays that we celebrate this time of year. Mm -hmm. Yet back in between college and graduate school, I had an entrepreneurial opportunity to sell Christmas trees on the Lower East Side of New York City in Manhattan. And I was there for the three weeks leading up to Christmas. It was an absolute blast. It put me in the holiday spirit. And we had bought the trees from a wholesaler, and I was the retailer. And so every dollar I made over the cost of the tree, I was able to put in my 
pocket. And what I learned was how do you price Christmas trees? <laughs> and so a couple of lessons learned. And remember, you had to picture this, you know, Lower East Side of Manhattan um, with all different walks of life. And you would price the tree based on the shoes the person uh, was wearing um, who approached <laughs> the stand. And if they were a very well-sold, expensive-looking pair of shoes, then the cost of the tree went up 25 30%. Um, <laughs> if they were an old, worn pair of sneakers, you, know, you brought the price down just a little bit. And I'm pleased to say the stand sold, we, we sold out at the end of the three weeks. So our pricing strategy worked very well. Uh, I also learned to deliver trees to the local apartments, and which also typically resulted in a little bit of holiday cheer uh, that kept, <laughs> kept me warm on the street corner uh, as I was peddling the trees. But it was, yeah, it was a great lesson learned in humanity, as you said, in economics and entrepreneurialism. Maybe that led me to a career in healthcare. I'm not sure of it, but I reflect fondly on that one particular holiday season and Christmas time. Well, Rich, I have to tell you, the next time that I come to give a talk to one of your board retreats, I'm going to make sure that I wear my oldest parachute. <laughs> that means I'll get you for a bargain, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the holidays on us, it's actually a, a time for us to kind of reflect and hopefully to be inspired. Rich, you are really, truly one of the really good guys in healthcare. You're someone that we can always count on to do the right thing, no matter what. It's not about the revenue. It's not about the incentives. It's just do the right thing. And I find that and you very inspiring. And I want to tell you, thanks a million for being with us today. Well, Tom, thank you. I'm the product of phenomenal parents, uh, great mentors, and great teams throughout my career. And to bring us back to the first question, fortunate to work with and amongst three great organizations, my current one that has a relationship with Washington University. And I've been grounded by the missions of those three organizations. And that really is to improve the health and well-being of the communities that we have the privilege to serve. And I don't forget that every moment of every day. And I appreciate our friendship over the years. I appreciate the work that you and our colleagues at Vizient do to help us be even better stewards of our resources and therefore be better caregivers in the communities that we have the privilege to serve. So I want to wish you a wonderful holiday season and look forward to seeing you in the new year. You too, Rich. Thanks very much. And I can't wait to get back to St. Louis to see you. Absolutely. There's a seat waiting for you at, at any one of these sports venues. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.